It's really great to see you all here again today. We did, as Hope said earlier, we just had an incredible Sunday last week. And I, I know I, I said it, and I, I really believe that it's true, that that was a little taste of what heaven, I think, is going to be like someday. There are going to be men that are going to bring you drinks from the back, and hey, there's one shows up right now. Thank you for that. It's awesome. I really believe it's going to be like that, though. And we're going to be coming, if you can imagine, you know, just watching our friend Emmanuel up on the screen, we're going to be coming, the Bible says, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We're just going to all come together, those of us that, that have trusted in Christ alone as our Savior, and we're going to spend all of eternity together. And I think a lot of us are just waiting for that to happen one day when that's going to be great. But so much of that could take place today if we understood that it is not about us. It is about the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. That's why his church exists, to bring him glory. And I believe that as as we do that, we'll get a little foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. I'm also already really loving Matt. I mean, look at this. I mean, he's sitting right down front. I mean, it's just awesome, man. The only thing better is if you and Dana were just sitting right there. That would be, no, 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 don't, don't move, don't move. Dana's going, no, close enough, close enough, all right? But seriously, we've had a great time. Uh, my birthday, some of you know my birthday was Tuesday, and I had all the guys over to my house, and we cooked meat. That's what men do, right? We went and got about 10 pounds of beef and chicken, and we went back, and D'Lo, uh, I say D'Lo, you don't even know who that is, David Loftus, he cooked it up on the grill, and we had quite the spread, and it was just awesome being together. So we're having a great time as leaders, I can honestly say that. We hope you are too, but we're having a wonderful time getting to know each other and figuring out what this new relationship looks like. Next week, I want to tell you, we're going to begin a, uh, a series in the Old Testament book of Esther. And I know already you are going to thoroughly enjoy the study of this Old Testament book. You know, this book literally is made for the movies. You know that. In fact, some of you have seen the movie One Night with the King. It was kind of based off of the story of Esther, the Old Testament book. It's going to keep your attention. It has an incredible cast of characters. And, and I love it because it's a, it's a story of God using messed up people I always like it when he uses messed up people because that gives me hope that he will use me. He's using messed up, really incredibly depraved, evil people to do what he wishes to do for his glory. And we're going to spend a number of weeks, actually a few months, in the book of Esther, and we're going to kick that off here next week. And so that's going to be really exciting. But for this week, we're going to cover the exciting, riveting topic of church leadership. (laughs) It's great, right? I mean, next week we're going to talk about a story that's made for the movies. And let me tell you, the ministry of an elder is not a story that's necessarily made for the movies. However, it is something that's incredibly important for us to understand biblical church leadership. And that's what I want to do with you for a few moments here this morning. You know that sheep are very interesting animals. You you recognize that, right? In in fact, I find that what's so ironic, in fact, the more that I think about it and the more that I study what sheep are actually like, I find it actually quite depressing that this is how the Bible describes us. (laughs) We're sheep. 
I also find it really interesting that most pastors like to talk about the sheep, not recognizing that they are one of these animals as well. I just happen, and our elders here this morning happen to be charged with the task of leading you as fellow sheep, but it's oftentimes a pretty discouraging and depressing fact that that's how the Bible describes us. Let me give you a few facts about sheep. Do you know that a sheep is the only animal that can be totally lost when it's only a couple miles from home? Other than Matt. Matt described to us last week that he can be lost as well. But it's one of the only animals. In fact, you know, if you've ever tried to leave your cat someplace, okay, I know some of you love your cats. I don't. But some of you love your cats. If you ever tried to leave your cat someplace, your cat finds its way home. I heard a story not too long ago about a lady who lost her cat. She was on vacation someplace, and she was in agony about losing her cat. Don't totally understand what caused the agony, but, but she was. And she went several hundred miles back home. And do you know that a few days later, they found her cat just a few blocks away from where she lived? Incredible thing. I think I'd move, but she didn't. Sheep have no instinct to get back where they came from and no sense of direction. When they go astray and they get lost, they have no ability to be able to care for themselves either. They become totally helpless and unable to find food and water on their own. And without a shepherd to lead them to food and water, they would die. They also must have clean water, but it can't be too cold and it can't be too hot. And most animals can smell water, but sheep cannot. If they wander too far away from their water, it's bad. They could be really close to water and they would never find it unless somebody led them to water. Sheep are basically also filthy animals. They're rarely white. We like to think of them as white, but if you've been out and you've watched a shepherd herding sheep as I have over in Turkey and Greece, you know that they're pretty nasty animals and they rarely are pure snow white. They're usually stained with something. In fact, their skin produces a sticky, greasy substance called lanolin, which causes everything that they get into to stick to them. Sounds like some of your kids, doesn't it? That's what happens sometimes. Sheep also, get this, they can recognize human faces and they can remember them for years. Some pastors have a problem with that, but sheep have the ability to be able to see a human being's face and remember it for years. They're also defenseless animals. I didn't recognize this until I studied this, that they can't scratch, they don't kick, they don't bite. They don't do anything. Like you could, you know, if you ever are struggling with your self-esteem and you really want to overtake something, a sheep would be an easy thing to do because they're defenseless, right? They, they have no ability to be able to defend themselves. And here's what I found to be ultimately really incredibly interesting. They're easily crushed when they have pain or injury. I thought as I read that a few years ago that that is so true and maybe that's one of the reasons why the Bible refers to us as sheep. They're easily crushed when they have pain or injury. In fact, they lack actually a self-preservation instinct. They lack the will to, to fight and to struggle for life. In fact, one researcher said this, a sheep with a full fleece can fall on its back and never get back up. It'll just stay there until it dies, unless, however, a shepherd comes along and helps it back up onto its feet. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Matt was telling me about a book that he's uh, recently read on Psalm uh, 23, and all the parallels of the shepherd and the sheep, and what an incredible analogy that is that we're given in Scripture. 
You know, also, being a shepherd is not the job you want to have. You get that, right? Nobody ever grows up saying, I want to be a shepherd, right? Maybe your kids right now are saying, Dad, when I grow up, I'd love to be a fireman or I'd love to be a supermodel and, you know, walk down there. Nobody ever grew up in Bible times saying, hey, someday I'd love to be a shepherd, As a parent, you'd never get excited about the dinner conversation around the table being, yeah, Dad, I think I want to be a shepherd. That wouldn't excite you. In Bible times, in fact, the role of the shepherd was reserved for the lowest people on the social ladder. You have to really love sheep in order to take on that responsibility. And so all the way through Scripture, we are referred to as sheep. A sheep, by the way, that God loves passionately and so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that we could have our sin debt paid. Now, if you have your Bible, turn just real quickly. We're not going to park here for long, but to John chapter 10, a passage which is familiar to many of you, John 10, 27 and 28, which says, my sheep hear my voice, this is God talking, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And here's the really incredible thing, that because God calls us sheep, and because he created the whole analogy with us being sheep, he knows that we need shepherds. And so I really believe this morning that one of the greatest gifts which God gives to his church are shepherds or elders to serve them. And by the way, elders, and I'll mention this in just a moment from now, elders are not given to the church, pastors are not given to the church, to the sheep in order that we might lord over them. We are really given as a blessing to the church so that we might nourish, mature, and protect the sheep, so that we might be a blessing and bring great joy to the church. In fact, I read this week, Actually, I was listening to a podcast by Dr. John Piper, and he was talking about this, that shepherds, elders who do their job well, have happy sheep. And when sheep are not happy in a particular church, that's usually not because of them. It's usually because of their shepherds. I have a tendency to agree with that statement. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul wrote this, And he gave some apostles, and he gave some prophets, and some evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Pastor, teacher. And why did he give them, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And so a definition would be this. An elder is a servant leader that's given by God to shepherd his flock. Now, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. There are many texts all the way throughout Scripture that talk about elders and our responsibility. And I've chosen this morning just to give you this particular text because I think it so aptly speaks to the role of the elder, to the role of the shepherd. You have to understand that shepherding, I think a lot of reasons why kids never want to grow up to be a shepherd is because shepherding is a difficult and messy challenge in the best of circumstances. And you need to remember, if you're not familiar with the circumstances under which Peter is writing here, his letter, that this was a very, very difficult time. The people are suffering because they're followers of Jesus, they're they're suffering persecution, and Peter's telling them that suffering is going to be more intense, not less. Imagine that. Your pastor walks up to you and says, hey, I know you've been suffering. In fact, let me share with you that it's actually going to get worse. 
what he says to them. What an encouraging word to bring to the congregation. He's going to tell them in, in chapter 3, verse 14, that they're going to suffer because of righteousness. Chapter 2, verse 21, that they've been called to suffer. And that when they endure their suffering, chapter 4, verse 16, that God will refine them and he will bring glory to himself. And so in difficult times, it becomes even more important that shepherds take care of the sheep. And in days like we live, when it's easy to be led away by the latest ideas, it's easy to kind of get taken away by the latest thought that's communicated by a quote-unquote preacher or teacher, it's so easy to give in to the cultural norms and to not stand up for what's right. It's important for shepherds to do what God's called them to do. And so because of all these trials that the people are going to face, Peter writes this in verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, that's God, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Now let me make a few observations about uh, verse 1. Here's what I think is really incredible. That, that Peter exhorts these people, he exhorts the elders among you, and he calls himself a fellow elder. I think that's an incredible thing. Some of you know that Peter was an apostle. He, he walked with Jesus along the road as he taught. He witnessed the crucifixion. He saw the suffering of Christ. He, he saw Jesus after the resurrection, and yet he humbly refers to himself as a fellow elder. <laughs> I'm guessing that if I was around that group of people, I just know the depravity that exists here, I would kind of help them understand that I'm like the super elder here, all right? You guys are little baby elders. I'm the super elder. I saw Jesus. I walked with Jesus. I got out of the boat and tried to walk on water. Don't think you did. That's what I would do. And yet it's really incredible that Peter says, I'm just one of your fellow elders. I don't want to get off on too far of a tangent because I will run out of time very quickly, but let me just say this. I'll repeat it here and again in a few moments, but it bears repeating that first of all, elders are to be humble men. Humble men. Notice also that he exhorts the elders, plural. I think that that is obviously the best model for church leadership is a plurality of elders. This model provides for accountability and also gives a variety of gifts to the flock. I think that you're going to see that if you hang around Northwest for any length of time, that the plurality of our elders, of our pastors, is going to be an incredible blessing to you. I really believe that as you see Matt and I work together, I think that you're going to see the incredible blessing of a plurality of church leaders, of different personalities, of different gifts, that all come together to be a blessing to the body of Christ. A plurality of elders also eliminates the undue elevation or dominance of one man. And by the way, that's only true if those elders are equally submissive to one another. If one tends to lord over the others, I believe it corrupts. And it elevates one man into prominence and into a position which is supposed to be reserved for the very God that we worship, not for a man. 
Now, there are three Greek words in the New Testament that are used to speak of one office. Some of you really get into this, and so I put this down there for you. Others of you are going, I would never remember those words. I don't even know why you put them down there. Well, hopefully you'll just still be impressed. There's three words that are used to speak of one office. Episkopos, which would be translated into English, bishop or overseer. The gift would be oversight, management. Poimenos, which is translated pastor, which is the shepherding, the caring aspect of the relationship. And then presbyteros, which is elder, which I believe speaks for the need of spiritual maturity. We'll see that here in just a few moments. All three words, are, by the way, are used in a particular text in Acts chapter 20. If you want to put your finger in 1 Peter 5 and go to Acts chapter 20 and look at verses 17 to 28, it says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called him the elders, presbyteros, of the church, And he said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to shepherd, poimenos, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's one of the greatest proof texts in the New Testament of why we believe that those three words speak to one particular office. Now, the qualifications of these men, of these elders who would lead the flock of God are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And again, if you want to hold your finger in 1 Peter 5 and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to read that to you. Paul wrote to young pastor Timothy, he said, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. I love that statement because it gives us the idea that we are to aspire to that. We're to desire that, all right? I don't know about you, but I don't want elders in our church who go, you know, you know, kind of like the Dunkin' Donuts commercial, time to make the donuts, you know, time to go into the boardroom and have an elder meeting. I don't want that, right? I want guys that are serving on our team that have a passion and a zeal for the gospel and for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, if you aspire, if you desire that office of overseer, it's a fine work that you desire to do. Look at verse 2. He starts giving us the qualifications. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now you look at those and you go, boy, I'm glad I'm not an elder. Here, let me just tell you this. While those are the biblical qualifications for an elder, those ought to be true of every single follower of Jesus Christ. You understand that? We are supposed to be working towards Christ-likeness. Men, it's not okay for you to go, hey, I'm not an elder. I'm not an elder, and that's why I do the things I do. You know, if I was an elder, now maybe not. No, no. These ought to be true of all of us. Let me go over them real carefully, or actually real quickly carefully. The biblical qualifications. He must be above reproach. He's got to be a man that's free from any serious character blights. Public sinful behavior. He's got to be respected by those that know him. It's got to widely be known that he lives a godly life. 
Most commentaries, by the way, would say that all other qualifications fall under number one, which is that those men be above reproach. Number two, he's got to be the husband of one wife. And so you go, that goes without saying. Well, you're looking at it in our culture. It didn't necessarily in Paul's day, but here's what it doesn't mean. There are some pastors who have chosen to rip this out of context and chosen to say that that means that he's married to one wife and that he's never been divorced. Here's what's very important for you to understand. Divorce is not the context here at all. It has nothing to do with divorce. Literally, in the Greek language, we would read it like this. He is to be a one-woman kind of a man, meaning that he is devoted to one woman alone. I served in a previous church where one of the guys on our team, and I'm embarrassed to say this, had a flirtatious attitude. One of our college kids picked him up one night at the airport. He didn't know that this kid went to our church. And he picked him up. He, he was driving for a limousine service. And he picked him up. And the guy got in the car after his business trip. And the college kid said to him, so I hope you didn't have to wait too long. And the leader said to him, again, not knowing who was in the driver's seat, well, I had to wait quite a while, but it didn't matter. There was some fine things to look at, if you know what I mean. Let me tell you, that is a man who is not qualified to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be one woman kind of men. To have a deep emotional, social, and sexual connection to our wives and to our wives only. And by the way, we might just simply say it this way, that we are to have marriages that are worth imitating. You ought to be able to look at our marriages and say, that's what I think I want our marriage to look like. He's to be a one woman kind of a man. Number three, he is to be temperate. In other words, he's to be self-controlled, not led by emotions or, or lust. He is not led by a particular agenda or emotions. He is to be temperate. Number four, he's to be prudent. He's to have a sound mind. You want men sitting around the table that are shepherding the flock of God that are able to focus and not be distracted. Number five, he is to be respectable. He's to have a well-ordered life. If you look at the man and you see chaos in his life and you see chaos that follows him wherever he goes, he should not be managing the house of God. Number six, he is to be hospitable. Does that word ring a bell if you were here last week? He's to be hospitable. Now remember we said last week, this isn't eating stale cookies and red juice down in the fellowship hall, okay? Like some of you grew up. You say, oh, I'm hospitable. Or you have an over your friends, you know, you're kind of BFFs and you hang out all the time. That's not what this means at all. What Paul is saying to Timothy is that the elders are supposed to be people who love strangers. Who love strangers. You want to know the guys that are really capable and qualified to lead our body here at Northwest? You're going to find out in just a few moments. When you go out there into the cafe area, when we dismiss you moments from now, You look for those guys that are going up and they're shaking hands and they're getting to know people that they do not recognize. We have a tendency to say, well, that's just an extroverted personality. Well, extrovert, introvert. I know what Paul says here, that we are supposed to be hospitable. We're to love strangers. We're not to be cliquish. We're to welcome people that we don't know. And in particular, by the way, those that are outside of the household of faith. Number seven, men are to be able to teach. They're to have a skill in teaching. 
Now, you might look at this and you might say, well, those then are just guys who can get up there and they can preach to a big public audience. That's not necessarily what's being spoken about here. It's not the primary giftedness, but an apt to teach the word. It's an ability to be able to handle the word of God. Don't you want an elder, when an elder sits down with you and you're struggling with an area in your own walk with God, in your own spiritual development, you're struggling with a major decision, don't you want somebody who has a handle on the word of God, who has the ability to be able to open up the word of God and exhort you based on what he knows to be truth? So not all elders will do public preaching. The requirement is not for a preaching gift, but for a solid grasp on doctrine and the ability to be able to spot and correct errors and explain biblical truth plainly. You ever know people that know a lot of stuff, but they can't explain it plainly? I went this week for a physical. I hate going to doctors. Nothing against doctors. I just don't like them touching me. I don't like them poking me. I don't like them looking in places where I don't, I mean, I just don't like going to doctors at all. But I really love my doctor. And here's why I love my doctor, because he speaks a language called English, right? You ever talk to a doctor and you go, I guess he's really smart and I'm glad he has responsibility for me, but I don't have a, I don't understand a word that he just said. You ever been to those? I'm the only one. Wow, that's great. The rest of you have great doctors. I love this guy because he has the ability to be able to go, yeah, that bump there, it's nothing really to worry about. All it is is just fatty tissue and going fatty tissue. I don't really like that word fatty, but all it is is this and you don't have to worry about it. You know, so I don't, I don't have to have surgery. I don't have cancer. I'm not going to die next week. Probably not. You're okay. I love that. That was English. I understood that. And that's the way that elders are supposed to be. We're supposed to be able to put the cookies down on the bottom shelf where you can understand it. And the only way that you can do that is if you have a grasp of the Word of God yourself, able to teach. Number eight, not a drunkard. Now, some of you go, well, duh, that goes without saying. You know, we don't want a bunch of drunks sitting in the boardroom. Well, it's not really that simple because really the idea here is a man who doesn't have a reputation as a drinker. We've chosen here at Northwest to land where we think the Bible lands. And I, and I don't believe it's wrong for you to have a beer or a glass of wine if you feel uh, like that doesn't hinder your testimony in your walk with God. However, I will say this. If you are known as a drinker, if you have a reputation as a drinker, you're not qualified to be an elder, to be a leader. Number nine is not violent. The King James says it, and I think the New American Standard says it as well, pugnacious. A word that basically means striker. It means, hey, you're, you're, you're given to blows. You know, sitting around a table with a group of men, you don't agree with me, man, I come across the table at you. I'll take you out what it means to be pugnacious. It's a disqualifier. Number 10, these men are to be gentle, willing to yield when yielding is possible. A man that doesn't always have to have his own way. And by the way, I, I would say as a person who is a little high-wired and a person who is a, just a tad driven, I, I would say that there are areas here that I have to continually be working on. When we look at something that says not a drunkard, not to worry about that. I don't have any interest in drinking, mainly because I'm too cheap. I'd rather have water with lemon, right? But when you get down to some of these other things, gentle, I always think my way is the best way. That's why I think it's the way, right? 
And to get to the point where you say, boy, I need to listen to other people. That's what it means to be gentle. Somebody doesn't have to have his way. A willingness to not have their way for the sake of the church. Number 11, not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. Your discussions shouldn't produce more arguments. Your discussions, however heated they might be, ultimately ought to lead to solutions. Number 12, not a lover of money. If you love money, you're going to misappropriate money. I can't tell you the number of pastor friends that I I have that have disqualified themselves from ministry because they've gotten into trouble with regards to money. And by the way, it's not necessarily just taking money out of the church offering plate, all right? By the way, some of you have this twisted idea that that's what we do. You know, we give the offering, we take it back to the office, and we kind of divide it up. You know that's not what happens, right? And what happens? You go, that's how those guys get corrupted. No, that's not what happens, right? I never touch the money here. Don't worry about me stealing $10,000. Worry about how I exercise my own financial fiduciary in my own home. I really believe that probably everybody that we put on staff, every elder that we put on our team, we ought to run a credit report on them. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. You can run a credit report and you can tell where somebody's heart is, or at least where it has been, right? We can tell that. Not a lover of money. Number 13, he manages his own household well. I'd love to park on some of these. By the way, this isn't a man that has perfect kids. If that's the case, I'm not qualified for ministry. My dad wasn't qualified for ministry. None of our current elders are qualified for ministry. No pastor that I've ever known is qualified for ministry, right? Because when our kids were born, they were born with this thing we call depravity. Yeah. Some of you are dealing with it a little more passionately right at the moment than we are, and you're going, yes, thank you, yes. This is not that you have perfect kids. It's that you manage those kids and you shepherd the hearts of those kids. Because I had the privilege of being a youth pastor for so long, I had a lot of pastor's kids that I was their youth pastor. And boy, can I tell you stories. Oh, when kids would get in my office and they would start telling me about their dads. Ah, my dad yells and screams and he does this and does that. And I'm going, oh, really? If every time I heard that, I would have gone, run into the guy's office going, you, my friend, are disqualified from ministry. Resign. We wouldn't have had leadership. By the way, I say that from the top all the way down to the youngest pastor. It's not the idea that he has perfect kids. It is that he manages and shepherds the hearts of his kids, the heart of his wife, that he takes personal responsibility for the shepherding and the management of his own home. I think there are guys that I've known in ministry who've had kids that have made some bad decisions and that's broken their heart, but they've been some of the most incredible pastors that I know. Let's be careful we don't overuse that qualification. Number 14, he's not a recent convert, right? It's really easy to take the new believer and go, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, let's put that guy in there, man. Boy, does he have passion. And then you get him in there and you start talking about doctrine, guarding the purity of the church, and he goes, I don't know, man, but I love Jesus. Love Jesus, right? We don't want recent converts. Now, if you're here and you're a new follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you're here. And here's what my goal would be for you is that one day you grow up in your faith enough that you're sitting around that table because you're no longer a novice in your faith. 
The greatest day at Northwest Community Church will be in the future when there are the majority of men sitting around our table who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior as a result of the ministry of the community of believers here at Northwest. That'll be the greatest thing. So if you're here and you're a new follower of Jesus, don't take that as a bad thing. Just grow up in your faith. And number 15, he's well thought of by outsiders. He has a good reputation with people outside of the church. He's a person of integrity, of high character. Now, real quickly, and I'm going to have to run like a, like a wild man through the rest of my material here this morning. Here's what the elders are not. Elders do not represent the people as in a democracy. Okay? Some of you have been in churches where that's true. You go to your elder and you go, I don't like what I heard. You need to go to the board meeting and you need to tell them this. That's not what an elder is. An elder does not represent the people as in a democracy. In fact, I could argue biblically that just the opposite. What elders do is we represent God before the people. That's what we do. Number two, elders do not lord over the people as in a dictatorship. Some of you, again, have been in churches where that's what the elders did, right? They were somehow super Christians, who had attained the level that we could only hope to attain to one day. And they had dictatorial reign over the body, over the sheep. And they loved talking about sheep. You sheep, be like me. That's not what elders do. We don't lord over as in a dictatorship. And number three, elders don't lead based on popular opinion or consent as in a republic. Aren't you glad? We got enough of that in these United States of America, don't we? We don't do that. We don't go out and go, oh, what do the people think? Mm." Well, I talk to the people and here's what the people think. The one time I see that in the Old Testament was, by the way, you know, when uh, Moses comes down and, and he goes, well, the people, and Aaron goes, oh, the people, I took a poll and the people wanted to do this and out of the fire came this golden calf. I didn't want to do it, but I took a poll And here's what the majority wanted to do. My experience has been that within the context of the local church, oftentimes the majority is not biblically minded. A very sad thing, but true. So what does an elder do? Look at verse 2. You're going, look at verse 2, man. It's 1116. Look at verse 2. We are to shepherd the flock of God amongst us. Notice it's the flock of God You ever hear guys talk about, well, my church and my people, I don't really want to say my church, my people. This isn't my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not any staff member's church. It's God's church. He is the great chief shepherd. (laughs) I and some other men here, we are under sheep shepherds, right? Right? We are to shepherd the flock of God. These four things, we lead, equip, nourish, and protect. Lead, equip, nourish, and protect. How do we do this? We exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. By the way, this is the verb form of episkopos, which was also used in in 1 Timothy 3.1. The clear connotation here is that shepherds must watch over the sheep to assess their condition so that we can lead and guard and feed them. Now, here's how we do it real quickly. We do it willingly, not grudgingly. Willingly, not grudgingly. 
There was a young man that uh, Chuck Swindoll talked about who was sound asleep on a Sunday morning when his mother burst into the room and she said, wake up, son, you need to get out of bed right now. And with his face buried in the pillow, he said, give me three good reasons why I should get out of bed. And he engaged in a tug of war with the bedsheet, and she finally responded, number one, because it's Sunday, and as Christians, we always worship on Sundays. Number two, because we only have 40 minutes until church starts, and you have not even showered. And number three, because you're the pastor, and you need to be there. Now, here's the idea. I think, and, and again, I don't want to make a blanket statement. I'm just telling you what I think. My opinion. It's not worth much, but I'll give it to you. 286 congregations this morning said that the weather was too bad to have church service today. I don't think that was because the roads were bad in all of those areas. You know what I think it was because of, in some cases? I think it's because there are some lazy pastors. We are to be people who are do ministry willing, willingly, not grudgingly. Look, he says, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. This means that elders shouldn't focus on what the people can do for them, but what they can do to serve people. They're to do it enthusiastically, not selfishly. Do you ever meet a pastor and, and, and you just go, I hope I never become like that? You ever do that? Or meet somebody, shake his hand and go, I don't ever want to be like that. If that's what a follower of Jesus is, you know, go some places. Listen to some men preach. Listen to them open up the word and you go, wow, if it's that exciting, it really hasn't changed you at all. We are to do ministry enthusiastically, not selfishly. We don't do it for sordid gain. I realized real quickly when I left school that I was never going to get rich being in the ministry. I figured that out. I figured that out when I went into my first church and they said, we're going to pay you $20,000 a year. That's all inclusive. I wasn't totally sure what that meant until I realized that, that it means it's all inclusive. <laughs> Which means I got to pay my health insurance and everything and you're just going, God, am I going to be able to eat? I mean, I can live off the land for a while, but am I going to be able to eat? Right? I realized early on that was, I wasn't going to happen, but I'm going to tell you one of the greatest passions in my life has been when you, are get, you get to be involved in something that God is doing and you get to be just a small part of it and you see what God's doing in the lives of people and how he's changing people's lives and he lets me be a part of that and he lets me earn a livelihood by doing that. Elders should be enthusiastic and do it enthusiastically, not selfishly. Verse 3, nor yet is lording over it those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. We are to be examples and lead by example, not dictatorially. That means that we live out biblical principles in our marriage, in our parenting, in our work, in our, in our neighborhoods. We show you how to sin and then make it right. I think I've mastered the sin part at times over 25 years of ministry. But when we sin, we make it right. I can't tell you how embarrassing it is for me as an elder to mess up. And then I have to look at a group of guys and say, forgive me for that. And always thinking, man, they're looking at me going, you're a loser. I mean, you're the pastor. You know, there hasn't been one time when that's had to happen, and unfortunately it happens quite regularly, when a guy's responded that way to me? I think there's something fresh about having leaders amongst us who 
are able to walk and travel the, the road that we travel on, and yet they're able to admit their own flaws, their own sinfulness, their own shortcomings. They're able to acknowledge that, to ask for forgiveness, and then move on together into better places. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. I love this. One of my favorite preachers of all time. I even listened to him as a high school kid. He must be good. He said, another principle that's kept me going is the importance of two-way tolerance. A pastor needs to be tolerant of the people he's serving. And the flock is to be tolerant of the ministers who serve as under-shepherds. We need to have attitudes of grace providing a lot of wiggle room. Give each other the freedom to try and fail, to be imperfect, to be oneself. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, and unwavering love are key ingredients to the acceptance, patience, and tolerance needed to thrive in ministry. Can I get an amen? I'm telling you, that's the kind of church I want to be a pastor of. Where people give me wiggle room. Not doctrinally. They allow me to mess up, make mistakes, to come back, to ask for forgiveness, to reconcile relationships. And by the way, when you allow that of your leaders, guess what leaders have a tendency to do? Two-way tolerance, right? That's a place where there's grace, mercy, and forgiveness and unwavering love. He goes on to say, I should add that the path to a large and effective ministry is never without its disappointing dips and unexpected turns. I've encountered church members who have accused me of wrong motives, criticized my candor, questioned my sincerity, and then walked out in anger. Chuck Swindoll said, I've made my share of mistakes and miscalculations too, failing to live up to the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. I love this. Here's what he says. That's ministry in the raw. Imperfect shepherds leading imperfect sheep in the service of a perfect God who has a perfect plan. Doesn't that sound like a place you want to be a part of? I do. I want to be part of a place where I know when I mess up, there is grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, and there is unwavering love. So if I want to be in that kind of a place then I have to help to create that environment. Verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. You do ministry this way, he says to the elders, here's what's waiting for you. Now, you may say to me, that was good and that was interesting. Maybe you never heard some of that stuff before, but why do I say it? Well, here's, here's the deal. We've had two men on our elder team, Sam Christie, who recently stepped off of our elder team to be involved in other areas of ministry. We're thankful for Sam's ministry that he's had amongst us, and he still continues to serve. He just won't be on our elder team. Charlie Rogers, who has served as the chairman of our elder team for several years now and has done so in just an incredible way, has a lot of pressures in his family with family situations, a lot of work pressure, some health issues that he won't talk about anyway, but that I know are beaten down upon him, and he's asked for a sabbatical. He asked for three months, like three months is going to make a difference, right? We said six months, and we'll evaluate it in June. But we find ourselves in a situation where we want more guys sitting around the table. I love that. I don't want fewer. I want more guys sitting around the table. And you say, well, it's harder to get things done. Yeah, but man, when you do, there's just a shared camaraderie with guys whose hearts beat for the ministry of shepherding the flock of God. And so you'll notice in your bulletin this morning that there's a little green card in there. And here's our process at Northwest. We want the Northwest body, as they did in the early church, to call out from among you leaders. All right? Guys that you know of, 
that are in our fellowship that meet the biblical qualifications that you just heard me talk about out of 1 Timothy 3. Here's what happens. We go to those guys, every single one of them. Even if we look at a guy and go, really? We go to him and we talk to him. We say, hey, your name was given to us as a possible elder. Some of those guys will go, I'm not qualified right away. And we'll go through it with them and say, well, why aren't you qualified? What can we do to change that so that if you're recommended in the future, you might be able to serve in that capacity at Northwest, right? You know what some churches do? Whoa, not that guy. woo What were they thinking? That sounds like equipping, doesn't it? That sounds like shepherding. No. We're going to go to every single name that you put down on those sheets of paper. I guarantee you we'll have a personal conversation with them. Those guys that feel like they meet the biblical qualifications and have a desire to serve, remember, enthusiastically, not grudgingly, you know, time to make the... We don't want any of that, right? We want people that are enthusiastic. We will interview them. Our current elders will interview those men. After they complete a very long application, after we run references on them, and then we'll bring them in with their wife. And then we'll get the real story, right? We'll get all the dirt on them then, right? The guy at work said, man, he's awesome. Then the wife goes, not so awesome, actually. All right, we're going to get everything. Number three, then we'll come back to the body and say, these are the men that we recommend based on all our interviews, based on all the things that we've done. These are the men that we recommend to be elders here at Northwest. And the body then will affirm their character for each man that's recommended. We'll then bring those guys up on a stage. We will commission them. We will affirm them again. The elders then minister in a servant leadership role uh, here at Northwest. And here's number six, and I think it's an important part of the process. When we choose our leaders, we affirm them. We affirm their character. They're men that meet the biblical qualifications of leadership. We follow the leadership which we've affirmed. And, And let me tell you, in our short history here at Northwest, this has worked beautifully. You know why I think it works beautifully? Because it's biblical. Works beautifully. We don't lord over people. They affirm and follow leadership, and it's been an incredible thing. And that's what we want to continue to see happen at Northwest. So I would encourage you, we're going to take those recommendations through March 10. Okay, so that gives you a couple of weeks. I would encourage you, you can drop it in the offering towers that are at the back of the auditorium. You can see one of our current elders if you have any questions. But we want you to be involved in the process. And then over the next few months, we'll introduce uh, some new guys to our leadership team here at Northwest. Uh, Let's stand together. I'd like to pray with you. Father, thank you for the incredible privilege of shepherding your flock. You know me better than anybody in this room right now, better than any human being ever could, and you know my sinfulness, and you know my tendency to stray and to wander from what I know to be truth. And, And yet, for some reason, God, you've counted me as faithful enough to serve in a capacity as an under-shepherd, and I'm thankful for that. And I I don't do it grudgingly. I do it enthusiastically. I do it willingly. And I count it an incredible privilege. And I'm thankful for those men that serve with me on that team of leaders. And, And God, I know that there are guys that are sitting out here right now, and something inside of them says, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be challenged in that direction to shepherd the flock of God. God, I pray that you'd give them a passionate desire in their soul for that ministry. And I pray that you'd lay it on the hearts of our people to recommend them that they go through that process. And we'll look forward in the weeks and the months ahead to introducing some new leaders to our elder team here at Northwest. 
Thanks for allowing us the privilege to be involved in something that's so incredible, the propagation of the gospel in our community and around the globe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.